Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, John Lefebvre, author of Straight to Hell and popular Twitter handle GS Elevator, joins the WSOPod to discuss his volatile career path. We learn about what initially drew him to Wall Street, why he left after a decade, and what he's up to now with a variety of startups. I think John's path is a great reminder of some of the dangers young finance professionals still face today. The temptations, the drugs, the potential erosion of character, and the chase for money is still something that I think is very much alive and relevant. Also, check out his latest entrepreneurial endeavors, including thewim.com, which is a collection of interesting content around lifestyle, finance, and travel, and brummelco.com, a fashion startup he launched a few years ago. Enjoy. All right, John, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So it'd be great if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio for the ones that don't know who you are. Sure. Uh, my name is John Lefebvre. I uh, was an investment banker. I joined Solomon Brothers on the fixed income desk in 2001, so right after the dot-com bubble burst. And I worked primarily in fixed income capital markets and on the syndicate desk in New York, London, Hong Kong, and Singapore through the financial crisis and then left. Uh, the bulge bracket buy sell side and started a capital markets boutique in, in Asia. Uh, did that for a couple of years and then kind of got uh, bored with the industry and having always been somewhat cynical on Wall Street culture and having collected stories and notes from my experiences, I uh, decided to shift over into the publishing world and wrote a book about uh, Wall Street culture and kind of along with it, set up a social media character GS elevator for the purposes of kind of promoting and, and building up a, a social media footprint in anticipation of my book coming out, which is now almost five years ago. The book was uh, called Straight to Hell. It was broadly you know, commercially successful. I think it, it debuted number seven on the New York Times bestsellers list and was optioned by Paramount for a movie, which is currently in development, although the, the script is objectively terrible so we can get into that get into that later if, if, okay if you want and then from there was faced you know i did gs elevator for a, a couple of years and got kind of bored with you know there's only so much you can say in terms of illuminating and satirizing wall street culture mm -hmm. uh through the lens of you know the worst parts the worst aspects of the, the culture in terms of the the racism and the classism and the misogyny and the corruption and, and deviance and so decided to shift having at that point you know a million and a quarter followers across, you know, various social media channels shifted into more entrepreneurial initiatives, uh, you know, obviously uh, started a fashion line 
looked at expanding or evolving the GSE, GS elevator footprint into more of a kind of a media type entity. And more recently, I've been looking at kind of private equity and, and other opportunities that have come my way. So it's awesome. a, a short, you know, synapsis. I'm sure we can break those components so down over the course of the conversation. One of the more interesting backgrounds we've had on here. So I'm excited to, to break down some of it. And the, the podcast you just released, do you want to promote that? I give it a little shout out right now. Yeah, I mean, I think we can get into that in a little bit greater okay. detail later on, but obviously it's all part of the evolution of GS Elevator, which as a Twitter character, you're limited to 140 characters in character. And so, you know, I evolved beyond that and started writing longer form content for uh, outlets like Business Insider and CNBC, mm -hmm. uh, you know, fashion guidance, business etiquette, how to get a job on Wall Street, why Wall Street is still a good place to, uh, you know, start your career general things like that. And it seemed to really resonate with a lot of people. And so most recently kind of evolved that into a podcast, which th the idea really is that we have an eclectic group of, of guests across, you know, business leaders, influencers, you know, political figures, uh, things of, of that nature, and just have general topical conversations on, on current events or, you know, uh, lifestyle guidance or, you know, sure. anything and everything really. That's awesome. So let's go all the way back. Let's, it's, it's interesting because you went to prep school. I went to prep school. Uh, you went to Choate. I went to Andover. Way yeah. back. We were, we were actually in high school about the same time. Um, was kind of Wall Street on your radar then, like all the way back then, or was it more once you were an undergrad? You know? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Actually, I, I devoted an entire chapter to, uh, in, in my book to, to that exact topic. So I was probably a sophomore in high school when I read Liar's Poker, and I thought, man, you know, this is really, really intriguing. Um, this is the, the direction I think, you know, I, I want to go in. And, and so, you know, I really knew that at age, age 14. And, and part of that stems from just looking around. Obviously, Choate is, you know, just outside of New Haven, which is, you know, 45 minutes from Greenwich, Connecticut. And so a lot of the, the kids that I went to school with were sons and daughters of, of Wall Street titans and financiers and people like that. So, you know, you had Ivanka Trump and you know, Brett Icahn, who's Carl Icahn's son. And you saw the, the Wall Street dads come to campus and their, you know, nice cars and the, the type of advice that they gave their kids, you know, the, a great piece of advice, which I kind of gleaned from them, which was kind of, you know, rules are for the obedience of fools and the, the guidance of wise men. So it was basically this mentality where you, you got to pick and choose which rules that that you chose to abide by. And so sure when we were, when we were in prep school, when yeah. we were in prep school, you know, and we went to go party in New York city for the weekend and get crazy, we would just sign out to, you know, somebody's house in Greenwich. Cause obviously, as you know, from Andover, you know, the rules are, are pretty strict. And so it was always kind of the wall street dads that let us break the rules and, you know, sweared with impunity and, and just seemed to have the most fun. And so from there I thought, okay, I want to, I want to go work on wall street. And having read Liar's Poker, obviously, I said, okay, I want to, you know, this time it's kind of dot-com era. Everybody wanted to go into equities and tech and IPO. And mm -hmm. I said, well, I just want to go join the bond desk at, at Solomon Brothers. And so that's what I did. I got an internship in London uh, when I was in college on the Solomon Brothers floor, the same trading floor that, you know, where Liar's Poker took place. And then mm -hmm. everything kind of took off from there. Do you feel like, I mean, what about your background, your, your parents? Was it, were they at all like not happy about it? Were they encouraging, just supportive? What was, the, what was that like? Yeah, that's a bit, a bit nuanced because on one hand, uh, my dad ran the commodities desk at Merrill Lynch in the 1970s. Okay. Um, but 
kind of retired early and decided to just throw everything behind and leave, got so sick and tired of the industry and moved to rural Texas. So I grew up in a small town about an hour north of, of Houston, and it couldn't be any farther from, from Wall Street. So on, on one hand, I had the natural connection there. But on the other hand, you know, when I, when I, got, when I showed up to Choate, you know, for boarding school, I was just some rural kid from Texas. Do you feel like a little bit of your path is kind of like your dad's almost in a way, um, where you started and then you basically did a complete, complete 180 and, and changed? Do you, do you ever, do you realize that or do you, do you acknowledge well, that? It, it, in a way, my path kind of mirror, mirrored his and that, you know, I spent a do- dozen years fully entrenched in, in the culture and in the industry and then reached a, a certain point, you know, 2012, 2013, where I just got really, really sick and tired of, of the industry and the culture and wanted to just go completely to the, the other end of the spectrum. I mean, it was like a, so, a pendulum that just swung. I mean, I, you know, I lived it you know, day and night for so many years that I just got really burned out. Yeah. So you, let's talk a little bit about just that, that you're, so you're in, you're in college, you know, you kind of, the initial interest is in, it sounds like in high school, um, given, given kind of your, your peers and all the, the cool wall street dads, we'll call them. <laughs> um, and so you, you're basically at undergrad and, and you know what you want to do from, from day one, you're, you're getting the right internships, you're doing all that stuff. Was there any kind of stumble or like, in terms of interviewing, anything like that, did you feel like you were ready or? No. Uh, and I, I've written about this cynically when I, 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 I've written about kind of how to get a job on wall street, how to AC interview or how to excel in your internship, um, which, you know, we can flesh out some of the content from, from those articles, but really it was, I don't know, not to sound arrogant, but it was a, it was an exceptionally easy path. And I, I'll qualify that statement by saying it was easy in the sense that, you know, freshman year, uh, after freshman year of college, you know, I threw a family connection, I got an internship at a futures and options boutique in London. And so if you think about it, for most college kids, not a lot of them have the ability just to fly to London for the summer and and not worry about budget constraints or applying for serious internships as a freshman or sophomore in college. I mean, I remember you know, that wasn't even really my first choice. I was like, okay, well, I'll just go work for Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns, mm-hmm. um, which kind of dates me, I guess, significantly. <laughs> right. But, you know, the feedback I always got as a freshman sophomore was, no, you, you know, you can't get these internships unless you're a junior. And so I, I kind of went the alternative route, but fortunately I had the means and resources to do it. The same with kind of sophomore year, um, you know, went and worked for a, a, a kind of a startup in a finance oriented startup in, in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, same kind of deal. Um, and then by the time junior year came around and I was applying uh, for a job at Solomon Brothers, you know, I had, I think, a pretty decent resume compared to a lot of the other other juniors. And so I got the job rather quickly, you know, on my own merits um, mm-hmm. and then received an offer at the end of my internship and just coasted through senior year and, and never had to really interview for another job after that. So you, you kind of, I think, partially the connections, partially knowing what you wanted early helped you. Um, and partially not ha- being able to afford the the trips to the internships to, out to London, which those all played a, a role, it sounds like. Yeah, a- absolutely. To which, you know, uh, I, I say that because I'm not trying to take credit for all of my accomplishments. I mean, clearly I, I, I came in at a, at a higher level than, than most yep. people have the ability to. And I, w- I was fortunate in, in, in that sense. So, uh, 
certainly. No, that's fair. That. I think we're all we're all starting off. I was very fortunate as well. So you know, I don't. <laughs> I think it's it's very natural to if you have your eyes wide open, you're you're being truly honest with yourself. I think it's it's good to realize yes, you worked hard, but also there was. Um, I, and I've certainly reflected. I mean, when we started the when I left uh, Solomon or Citigroup then, um, and we started a boutique firm. You know, we hired forty five people in, in six months, and to do that, you know interviewed probably 500 people. And so I certainly have a certain self-awareness in terms of, I think, what, where I was given a head start and uh, mm-hmm. what it would take if I hadn't been afforded that, that head start in terms of kind of networking, in terms of preparing, in terms of focusing your academic studies. I mean, even when I was a, early in my college years, I was taking classes on options and you know, equity valuation, fixed income securities and, and things like that. And so that yeah. when I got into the interview stage, I was exceptionally well prepared to the extent that, you know, even when I was being interviewed by first and second year analysts, I think in some cases I felt more knowledgeable on certain topics as it related to fixed income securities or, you know, equity valuation than perhaps even even they were. Any tips for listeners on how to kind of be that well versed besides books and just reading as much as they can? Well, I think you have to be passionate about it. I mean, if you, you, I mean, I've enjoyed, you know, the space for, for so long, I was exceptionally passionate about it. And so, you know, the advice I have for, for kids now really is, you know, figure out if you are passionate about it. So try and read through the Fabozzi fixed income securities book, which is a, a nightmare to get through, you know, <laughs> study for your, you know, CFA while you're in college, you know. Most college libraries have Bloomberg terminals. Bloomberg offers free tutorials on, on how to use them. Get well-versed on, on Bloomberg. I mean, those are pretty easy things to do. You know, yeah. network with older students in the, the finance clubs and the business clubs. You know, look at what, they're, what they achieve in terms of where they get placed at, at, at firms. Replicate the path that they took. Stay connected with them. And then one of the things which I always point back to as, as one of my biggest regrets is, is just networking. Because even though I kind of coasted to some extent, you know, even when I got to Asia, I was on the fixing of syndicate desk, um, which for people who don't really aren't really familiar with that world, you were, you kind of straddle the, the sell side. So the investment bankers and their corporate clients um, and the buy side, so sales and trading and their buy side clients. So the investors, the hedge funds, asset managers. And so, you sit above the Chinese wall and you work right in the middle. So you have a perfect vantage point to kind of have all knowing access to everything that's going on with the bank. And to the extent that you do kind of public deals, uh, typically, you know, you're not a sole book runner on, on most transactions. And so you're doing deals with three or four or five banks. So you're doing deals with every, every bank on, on wall street. And it is in terms of the allocation process it is a global process. So you're working with colleagues and, New York, London, Asia, irrespective of, of where you're sitting. And so that gave me exceptional access and exceptional credible vantage point from which to opine on, on the culture. I think the, the frequent refrain that you hear in terms of pushback from kind of Wall Street apologists is that there are always a, a few bad apples as it relates to, you know, deviance and, and corruption. And I think from my experience, um, it was, 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 was quite the, the opposite. But as that related to your, your question uh, in terms of what would be good, valuable advice for, for people, and certainly if I could go back in time, would be just network like crazy. And so one of my biggest mistakes, I remember I would do these road shows and with my New York colleagues and U.S. colleagues in, in Asia, and we'd have, you know, 40 investors at a lunch and 20 bankers and 10, you know, kind of CFO, CEO level clients. And you go around exchanging business cards. 
you know, I was, I guess, a little cocky. And when I walked out of those roadshow luncheons, I would just drop 40 business cards in the trash can. And these are all people now who uh, have dispersed all over the globe in a variety of industries with varying degrees of, of success. You know, they're corporate executives, they're tech startup founders, they're involved in politics and policymaking, or they're senior at, you know, banks all over the world. And I never really fostered those relationships. So you can, it's important to network, even if you're an analyst or an associate going all, all the way up. But if you're uh, a college student, I think it's important to network with the people that you envy two or three years ahead of you and treat them as, as seek out them as, as mentors, follow their trajectory, emulate what they have done to achieve their success and stay in touch with them. Um, yeah. I think is fundamentally important. And yeah, it, it's, pattern. It, it, it's, if you're not at a target school, it can make all the difference in the world. I mean, I wasn't at a target school and obviously I had a leg up, but I think that mentality is what got, got me in, in the door because certainly the big banks were not coming to Babson college to, to recruit kids like me. We had yeah. to go out there and find it. That's fair. Yeah. I think, uh, I think that's a, that's a pattern we hear just consistently on this show. It's just like, I wish I had networked more. I wish I had been in touch or had realized how, you know, that one connection could make such a dramatic difference. And, um, so that's, that's great to hear. So tell me a little bit about, you know, you were, you, it took a while for you to actually leave, right? So you, you said you got like, and you were a trader for a while. You were on the desk. You kind of were, it sounds like you started partying in high school pretty hard. You probably partied through college. You kind of extended that through into, into your first few years at Wall Street. And, you know, I partied hard, but not necessarily as hard as you did <laughs> from what I've yeah. read. Um, well, Asia, Asia is a completely different animal. Talk um, to me about any, that. Anything, yeah. anything goes in Asia. So, you know, the first day I arrived in Hong Kong um, on the syndicate desk, in that capacity, your deals are by nature, you know, emerging market, largely high yield deals outside of, you know, like Korea, you know, right. Philippines, Indonesia, China, they're all, you know, high yield credits. Yeah. Um, the head of hedge fund sales desk handed me the number of uh, just a, a number. I said, what the hell is this? He said, it's, it's the, you know, our, our drug dealers number. You're, you're going to need it. And the, the philosophy, I mean, we would, you know, if there was a big bond deal where it was eight, 10 times oversubscribed, um, we'd get calls from hedge funds taking us out, taking us on trips. And the, it was, you know, quid pro quo where the next day when we were allocating deals that they could just flip for an immediate profit, even if they didn't, have any interest in, in the deal um, was that they showed us a good time. We hooked them up on hot deals. You know, alternatively, if I had a, a, a private placement that, you know, I was this close to getting over the finish line, I could call a few hedge funds who I thought, you know, owed, owed me favors and call in those favors, or I could go out and, you know, take them out or take them on trips or, or send them stuff. I mean, it just, it was, you know, wild west. I mean, I remember competing for deals in Indonesia and the, the head of capital markets at Deutsche Bank, sent an analyst with a crocodile Hermes Birkin bag to hand deliver it to the, you know, it was an Indonesian tycoon, hand deliver it to his wife in exchange for get it, for Deutsche Bank getting a, a high yield mandate that, you know, generated $6 million in fees. So that type of stuff just happened all the time and, and happens still in the emerging markets in, in particular, in terms of the, the inherent conflicts of interest and the, and the, the kind of corruption that it's hard that to, takes place yeah. in the allocation process. I feel like, well, yeah, it sounds like a little more wild, wild west, but I'm sure it happens even here in the U.S. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah ab absolutely. Maybe not to the extent, but <laughs> you know, I would have, I would have hedge fund guys. They they would find out a deal was, you know, twenty times oversubscribed, and people talk think that it's some great, sophisticated universe of you know hedge funds. But these guys, 
would call up and say, hey, you know, I'm really interested in this Megatron deal, you know, South Korean telecom company, yeah. uh, you know, put me in for 20 million. And I would say Megatron, you mean Magnachip? You know, they wouldn't even know the name of the deal, but they just heard that it was 10 times oversubscribed. And they know they thought we owe owed them a, a favor and they wanted, they wanted, you know, 20 million bonds. I mean, that's how the allocation process happens. And it still does. I mean, you can't take those complex interests out of the, the allocation process because bankers have full discretion and they have to weigh in the, the broader interests of the firm, their, their next few deals or relationships that, that other groups within the firm might have with them and, and foster those relationships on, on both the buy side and the sell side. So did that actually wear on you or was it just a block? Was it a lot of fun? I mean, it was always probably a lot of fun while you were going through it, but did it wear on you or was it more like, I just want to do something different? Is that like in terms of why you broke away? Yeah, I mean, I think it broke away for a couple of reasons. One, after the crisis, um, it just got a lot harder to get deals done. And it just wasn't fun. It wasn't as fun anymore. And so I'd always said, you know, everyone has a bad day or a bad week or a bad month. But as soon as you start having, you know, more bad days than good over a long period of time, it's probably time to go and do something else. I think the other thing about it, especially being in Hong Kong and, and Singapore, is it still is a little bit of, you know, of a soulless existence, right? So it's like, you know, see bonds, sell bonds, repeat, you know, go out and party all night, wake up at six o'clock in the morning, do the whole thing over again and spend your weekend sitting by the pool, you know, drinking cocktails. After a while, you realize that that's no real way to live a life. And so to our earlier point about that kind of pendulum shift, I was sitting there in, in Asia, just having, uh, so, you know, I, I started the boutique and then kind of had a falling out with the, the partners there that, that well, I tell me how long, with. how long were you at the, at the, at Solomon for a couple of years? Right? So I, yeah, I was there from 2000 to uh, 2010. And then I left wow. with my boss in Hong Kong and my boss from uh, London. And we set up a boutique capital markets firm that the idea there was that post crisis, the banks were stepping back from a lot of the kind of SME clients who needed covering because, you know, you can do a Republic of Korea or Indonesian sovereign deal in a day and a half. But if you're trying to do a private placement, you know, $50 million or $100 million private placement for a Chinese company or Indo Indonesian corporate that takes, you know, six months to gestate and may or may not even happen, depending on what market conditions look like six months from now, yeah. uh, they decided not to engage in any of that business. So we saw an opportunity there. And then a year later, um, which probably gets a little bit too complicated for this podcast, but I was poached away by uh, Goldman Sachs uh, to run their syndicate desk, which incidentally turned out to be the desk that would go on to do the one MBD deal. Uh, so it was probably a good thing that I, I wasn't there. I probably would be, you know, dead or in jail. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, a, a month after I signed, uh, the, I had such a bad falling out when I left the boutique firm that I helped start that, you know, they tried to enforce the non-compete clause in my contract, which kept me out of the market for a year over, over that non-compete. And after that point, you know, to what we discussed about it being kind of a soulless existence, I said, you know, there's more life than this. And I just kind of, having had roots in Houston, I, I kind you, of- You went for a while though, I mean, 10, almost 10 years, right? Yeah, yeah. well, ten, yeah, 10 years at, at Solomon and then, Solomon. you know, a year and a half at the boutique and then so that's a like, year a year contractually obligated to sit out of the market. Uh, and then I think okay. like recoup, I mean, obviously there's, there's substance abuse and stuff like that to help you keep going. But like, did it, was there like when you're at the pool trying to like recoup on the weekends, is that enough? You just drink, you drink all day and go get, you know, a two hour massage. I mean, that's, 
that's but, how I re- recoup. Yeah, I get you got to sleep a lot too, right? <laughs> you got to sleep sometime, right? Did you feel like you were going to burn out or like have a heart attack or something at some point <laughs> at like 35? We definitely saw that. I mean, I didn't know this at the time, but you know, the guy that I was replacing when I got sent to Hong Kong was a little bit older than me and he was kind of this perfect, you know, played played tennis in college, went to Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and then over to Solomon ran the, the hedge fund desk in, in Asia and then, you know, had the, the apartment on Central Park West and the, the beach house in the, the Hamptons and gets out to Hong Kong and just goes crazy with the, the drugs and the women and ends up, you know, fracturing his marriage and has to move back to New York. Um, so you definitely saw the, the, the burnout. But for me, I mean, I, I never really saw that. I just got personally sick of it. I mean, I guess that's a sort of burnout, but I never yeah. really felt the the kind of okay. physical, physical fatigue. So tell me, as then, you're kind of thinking, I, once, once that non-competes in force, is this kind of when you start thinking, hey, maybe I want to do a book? Or when, when does that start kind of? Yeah, so I got to, when I started, I thought, okay, this is great. Here I am. I made it. Uh, and then you look around, you, I spent two years making PowerPoint presentations. and thought, man, this sucks. And then you talk about the masters of the universe. And I look around the trading floor and I thought, man, First of all, these guys really define themselves as human beings based on their job and not a, a lot of other, I mean, I'm generalizing here, but yeah. I, I just found that people took themselves far too seriously and define themselves uh, primarily based on their job as opposed to any other aspect of their life, which to me was a little bit sad. And then I also looked around and I thought, man, there aren't that many of these people who are really that impressive. I mean, this is kind of, you know, to some extent, monkey work. I mean, obviously it changes as you grow up, but that was my experience as, as an analyst. And so that was really when um, I started collecting notes with the intention of eventually writing a book about it. And then so when I left the industry and wanted to move back here, I kind of said, okay, well, I've been in Hong Kong, you know, going crazy for eight years. What's the opposite of that? You know, it's probably a, a leafy golf course suburb of, of Houston, Texas. And so I, I moved back here, you know, started a family, and, and that's when I kind of sat down to write the book and start the start the Twitter account, GS Elevator. You started you started the Twitter account; it exploded very fast. Yeah, remarkably fast. I mean, the timing yeah. was just part. It was right, you know, it was mid Occupy Wall Street, and so I was sitting in a bar in in Hong Kong uh, right before I was getting ready to leave, and we were talking about Occupy Wall Street. And I was there with a friend of mine from Goldman Sachs, and he was talking about how his wife was on the Upper East Side at a dentist's office and mentioned to the receptionist that their insurance was covered by Goldman Sachs. And here she is getting heck. I mean, there was so much animosity towards kind of bankers and Goldman Sachs in particular at this time that yeah. she got heckled out of a, with her kids, heckled out of an Upper East Side dentist's office. And we were laughing about it and saying, man, if people, re- as much animosity as there is, if people really understood the deviance and corruption and disregard for basic societal norms and rules and the classism, racism and sexism and all this other stuff in terms of the bad behavior, they would be even more appalled than they already are. And so it was in that kind of drunken haze that I, I started GS Elevators, kind of the, the premise of, you know, things overheard in the elevators of Goldman Sachs, which was never to be taken literally. It were really just right. kind of quips that illuminated and satirize the investment banking culture and, and mentality, certainly the worst elements of it, which was largely what my experience was. So it was, it was obviously very, uh, a great, great way to incite, get attention, incite kind of really a, a lot of emotions on both sides, either people thinking it's funny or people thinking it's like extremely well, 
parade. That's what I that's what I loved about it because I had the kind of the frat bro universe messaging me and responding with saying, This is awesome. I want to go work on Wall Street. This is hilarious. And then I had kind of the slightly more sophisticated, older on the political spectrum, probably more liberally orientated people saying, wow, this is great as, as kind of satire and uh, illuminating an old, odious culture. And so the, the appeal worked of, across the spectrum, depending on the, the lens that people were looking at it through. That's really interesting. Yeah. So, so it exploded it grew really fast. That immediately kind of probably just pushed you even more towards, hey, I, this book has to happen because it's going to be. Yeah. I mean, that again, I don't want to sound like a total ass, but that process also was pretty easy for me because, you know, within a very short period of time, I had hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers and I had, you know, CNBC asking me to write for them. Uh, I had Business Insider asking me to write for them. And so I started contributing articles uh, that were kind of a blend of humor, satire and genuinely good advice. So it would be like, you know, 25 rules of bar etiquette or, yeah. you know, airplane travel etiquette or 99 rules to live by or, you know, uh, Wall Street fashion guide or, you know, things like that, where again, it was supposed to be humorous, but there was a grain of, 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 truth. of truth in it. And I had written an article called How to Be a Man. Uh, I guess this was 2013 or 2014, end of 2013. Mm-hmm. And it had like 6 million views. And I think to this day, it's still the most read article in Business Insider history. And it just really exploded, you know, how to be a man. Uh, and uh, from there, I had a bunch of agents calling me saying, hey, let's put together a, a book proposal. And so teamed up with uh, an agent and we kind of roadshowed a, a proposal, which was simply, uh, a, you know, a bunch of my tweets, an outline of what I wanted to write about for the book and two sample chapters that I, I put together in, you know, pretty quick order. And then from there had, you know, seven proposals uh, for, from publishers. And then so you were a first time author with the, given the, given your following, were you able to negotiate a pretty good advance? Are you, are you comfortable sharing like what your advance was and all that stuff? Yeah. So it's kind of a, it was a mid six figure advance, which for a first time nonfiction author is like the, the 99.9 percentile which was amazing too, because that also put a big target on my back from kind of the, you know, the finance journalism and FinTwit community, all these guys who had been working up to their entire lives, you know, to get book deals or get published or find an agent. And I kind of fall into one. That's when I I started to see a lot of animosity online, a lot of misinformation and, and smears, especially as I got closer to publication and you know, Goldman Sachs and Citigroup were kind of incentivized to uh, undermine my or attempt to undermine my credibility with a lot of falsehoods, which is probably the most frustrating thing about this process. Because here I am thinking, of course, people know Liar's Poker and Barbarians at the Gate or Den of Thieves or Predator's Ball or even, you know, Monkey Business or Tony Duff's great, great book, The Buy Side, which is a really, a really great book. Yeah, Tony's book was great. Yeah, I love Tony's book. Um, And here I am thinking, okay, I've collected these stories I have this unique vantage point where I've worked with every bank on every continent from the dot-com bubble through the financial crisis yeah. and sat above the Chinese wall. Um, it's it's a, a vantage point that hasn't really been explored because, you know, there's obviously tens or hundreds of thousands of, of, of employees at any given bank, but mm-hmm. at, for the equity and debt syndicate desk, there's, you know, you can own, there's only, you know, 10, 20 people and you can only be in New York, London, you know, a few guys in Frankfurt and maybe Hong Kong or, or Singapore, excluding kind of local market syndication. Um, so it was a very prestigious desk to be on. And it was a very credible vantage point from which you can credibly opine on, on Wall Street culture. So to see those smears and attack on my, attacks on my credibility 
were, were particularly, particularly frustrating. Yeah. I mean, not uh, frustrating, but also not surprising given they're trying to distance yourself and say you're a hack of some sort, right? Or you yeah. And we had to, you know, when I worked in banking, we did these bond deals and these roadshows, we had to work closely with the financial press to uh, promote these deals. Um, so I had good relationships with the corporate communications teams uh, and a lot of journalists. And so right before my book came out, you know, I had the corporate comms guy at Seager bragging about calling in favors from Fortune magazine or the New York Times to to really negatively review my book. Um, so I, I found a lot of, you know, I, this was kind of pre-fake fake news, but it certainly opened my eyes to the, you know, how corrupt some of these guys in the media were too and how intertwined them. I and obviously, you know, uh, Bloomberg, I mean, I like Bloomberg, obviously, but they can't, you know, the financial services firms, you know, pay their, pay their bills, right? And they, some of these you know, Fortune magazine or Forbes magazine, you know, I'm sure half of their ad revenue comes from the financial services industry. So they have to placate those guys, which I guess is understandable, but it was certainly a very corrupt process. Hmm, interesting. Interesting. So you're, you released the book, it, it debuts around number seven, you said? Uh, yeah. In your Times bestseller list. So pretty solid. I mean, you, you're getting some royalties eventually after that advance kind of runs through and um, it's. Yeah, it's, it's, it, 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 it sells pretty, pretty steadily. I mean, I think it, in terms of relevance, it's, it's fairly evergreen and I've continued to kind of evolve my focus in areas that, that keeps it, you know, keeps the book, I guess, relevant. Uh, so the sales, the sales are, are pretty, you know, it's not, it's not liar's poker. It's not a perennial top seller, but um, I still see steady sales and steady feedback from people that younger people who come up and probably weren't around, you know, five years ago when GS elevator was more relevant or when my book was being promoted and they yeah. kind of come and come across it or organically um, or as they prepare for a career in, in banking uh, or in finance in general, they, they hear about it and read it and it resonates with them. So from 2000, you started a family, you got married, you're in the, in the burbs and um, that, that kind of going hundred miles an hour, to down to, you know, much slower lifestyle, I assume. What was that transition like for you? I mean, you're, you're now like an author, you're right. You're, you have, uh, you have that. And then potentially you're kind of, you're kind of free at that point, right? Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's kind of exactly what happened. I mean, I was going hundred miles an hour and I wanted to take it down to zero. And so I really did just spend a couple of years writing the book, playing golf, drinking, and, uh, you know, having a couple of kids. And then of course, that being the opposite of my traditional banking experience, now the, the, the pendulum started to shift back or, or normalize a little bit. And so having taken a couple of years off to spend with, with my, my kids, uh, at, you know, who obviously were very, very young at, at, at that point, um, started to kind of re-engage and, and focus on, on new initiatives. And so the first thing I did was, you know, about two years ago, I was looking at this you know, having a million followers and thinking, what the hell do I do with it? And I had written uh, some, you know, kind of fashion article for Business Insider that was really popular. And in it, I kind of advocated my personal preference as it related to fashion. And I said, you know, I hate colorful, gimmicky socks. They don't add personality or fashion sense. So, you know, I don't like pairing or sorting or color matching. And when I worked in finance, I would always just get, and I love the feeling of fresh, crisp new socks. And so when I worked in, in banking, I would just buy, you know, 10 pair of identical black Calvin Klein socks. And then every two months I would throw them away and get, get new ones. Yeah. And so I wrote about that a little bit and I got an amazing amount of feedback from people saying, wow, it's a lifestyle choice. Like this is just such an excellent, 
excellent advice in terms of just starting your day with fresh, crisp socks, not even thinking about the colors and wasting time or bandwidth doing anything else. And so a couple of years ago, I said, well, I've got this, this following, it's a pretty good demographic, you know, 1.2 million, mostly male, finance oriented aspirational, educated people. Um, might as well do something with it. And so I decided to start a fashion line uh, focusing initially on the neglected top drawer. So just socks, underwear, and undershirts. And so the first thing I did is I went to Neiman Marcus here in Houston and sampled 30 pair of socks and sent them off to a factory in China and tweaked the design a little bit to make them thinner and silkier and less cotton because I don't like cotton. Yeah. Um, more, you know, it absorbs moisture and odor and bacteria. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, more spandex in the cuff uh, so it doesn't slip. Little tweaks like that. And so I'm, I'm taking a, a $20 Neiman Marcus sock and finding a factory that can evolve it and replicate it for, you know, 90 cents or, or whatever, whatever the, the, the number is. And so that's, and then, you know, the way technology had evolved up until two years ago, it, it was really easy to get into the e-commerce business, especially if you already have a, a social media following because your customer acquisition cost is zero. And right. so I went from the factory in China to working with Shopify on the e-commerce side and working with uh, ShipBob on the fulfillment side. And so without really having any overhead or employees, uh, no other concerns other than, you know, you have a proven product, it's a simple product. So as long as you're able to acquire customers, it's, it's a fundamentally easy business to, to start up. And so did that so, two so years ago. You, and, you want to say the name for, for anyone that wants to Yeah, socks. sure. It's called Brummel. It's named after Bo Brummel, a 18th century uh, gadabout in London who kind of revolutionized men's fashion. And he kind of came along and said, hey, why are we wearing these dumb, long tights? <laughs> uh, we should make our, our fashion statements with our wit and intellect or even a watch or a scarf or a hat, anything but, you know, socks. And so that's the same kind of ethos that, that we have embraced for, for the brand. So it's just, you know, really, really simple, understated top drawer needs with a focus on value, convenience and, and comfort. And so you, you did this and this was basically, it was almost like a subscription based, right? It's, idea it's, that you replace every... we, we do either. So yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, theoretically we encourage subscriptions, but as yeah. somebody who traditionally, you know, anytime you hear sock startup, you kind of roll your eyes. Most of these people are in this kind of colorful gimmicky marijuana leaf socks or polka dot socks, yeah. or you see all these subscription services. And so when I was looking at starting, I thought, man, this seems like one huge cliche. And so I wanted to be contrarian in, in terms of the focus and that we went for simple, you know, clean design and then not just re rely entirely on the subscription model. And so- I'm pulling um, up now, Rommel. I'm checking it out. And so tell me, how, how has it gone? Is it, is it something where you feel like it's just a, like, does it continually, if you've done any SEO, is it continually generating revenue? Or is it like, was there a big surge? And then obviously after the promo, it, it kind of comes down to a steady state, but is it, has it done okay for you? Yeah, it's been, it's been great. I mean, obviously, you know, I found whenever I used to buy, say you buy a Calvin Klein boxer brief and it has the, the logo is screwed up or the, there's a, the, a tear in the seam. It's in the, it's just underwear. Who cares? You, you know, you don't, who cares? So, you know, the, and it's a quality product regardless, but I found the, the return rate is less than 1%. The subscription cancellation rate is, is I think less than 1%. And so we're just acquiring customers uh, and then gradually looking at expanding our product offering into higher dollar margin SKUs. And so you start by selling people, you know, $7 or $20 Neiman market stock for $7 and deliver it to them. And then you look at selling them, you know, $30 undershirts and $25 underwear. And, and just at the end of last year, I rolled out a limited edition tie, um, which was, you know, sold out 
sold out pretty quickly. And so, you know, anytime I've wanted to acquire customers, I've used, I've written some content or used social media or, you know, put out Instagram posts, which has been easy. I mean, obviously that's a well that you can't go to forever without seeing diminishing returns. And so, right. you know, we reached that kind of an inflection point last year where we decided we wanted to kind of grow up and be, you know, very serious in terms of going after some of our much larger competitors, you know, competitors who are raising money at, you know, two, $300 million valuations. Right. And so we closed a, a seed round uh, with, with a private equity investment firm here in Houston at the end of last year. Congrats. And they're in the process of really ramping up, you know, our fulfillment, um, getting our cost down a little bit, uh, our SKU expansion, focusing on ho- higher dollar margin SKUs, and then really a, a more sustainable CMO effort aside from just leaning on the, the social media platform and the content. I'm, I'm curious about that. Cause you know, our business is very similar. It's, it's, you know, our, our community presence helps us sell our interview courses, helps us sell our, our subscriptions to our company database, all that stuff. Um, I'm curious, have you, is there been any results in terms of like um, Facebook ads, Instagram ads? Have you tried any of the paid stuff? And has it, has it been a, it's tough when you're selling a $7 sock, like you have very little dollars to play with in terms of acquiring the customer, right? Right. But you know, as long as you know, you're acquiring the customer for life and that yeah. you are confident in your ability to sell them higher dollar margin stuff later on, then uh, the lifetime value of that customer goes well beyond, you know, a course, single yeah. purchase of one pair of socks. And so, you know, it's really amazing. Um, uh, when we started, so it started two years ago, you know, let's call it a year and a half ago, our mm-hmm. average ticket size was probably $32. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now having just added a few SKUs, our average sale is probably $85. And wow. we're really only getting started on, on the hot, higher dollar margin stuff. As it relates to your specific question on kind of being really aggressive on the, the Facebook and Instagram ads, it's actually something that we haven't really employed. So we're still in the process of putting together the video content and the working with the team out in, in California to get that stuff rolled out. So you'll start seeing really aggressive, a really aggressive push from us probably over the next couple of months. It's exciting. I love the startup stuff. We could talk about fun. this for hours. Um, so, so, okay. So you've, you've done that. That seems to be going great. Are you doing the day to day on that or working a few hours a day on that? Or what's, what are you spending your time most, most of your day now? Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, we closed the, the seed rounds, uh, last year and we're just ramping that up now. So that's occupying, um, uh, a large portion of my day. And then, uh, I've started working with the private investment firm that, that participated or, or led our, our seed round in, in looking at other deals, kind of dusting off the, the toolbox. And so we're working on a, a kind of healthcare related startup, uh, which will be launching in about two months, which I can't really get into uh, detail on, but I think we're, we're very, very excited about that. And we've been looking at the, the kind of continued evolution of, uh, GS elevators, you know, social media footprint in terms of it being a kind of a, almost like a media company. Um, so looking at a couple of different books, looking at the, the podcast, a, a website, I, I found the media space to be very kind of siloed, um, you know, take like, you know, business insider or even on a, at a political level, right? Like, you know, we, we went to boarding school, right? Most of your friends and my friends are probably left wing. Um, you know, in this election cycle, even the previous election cycle, if I got into a political conversation with somebody and sent somebody a Fox News link or a Breitbart link, they, they won't even click on it. And conversely, you know, if I got a Huffington Post link 
you know, I immediately dismiss it. Um, and so I didn't really see a place on the internet where, that, which appealed because, you know, I, I look at Twitter as kind of the, the curation, which I think Twitter has, is really a, a big part of my, my life and that I can, I can wake up every morning and in 10 minutes go through my curated Twitter feed and have a, a better understanding of everything that's going on than if I'd spent two hours, you know, going through ESPN and the New York Times, you know, right. TMZ and, you know, the real estate section of Sotheby's or travel and leisure or whatever it is. And so I didn't think there was a home for people that reflected those eclectic interests and also a home that combined created content. Because as you know, it's, it's hard to run a sustainable media company and rely entirely on created content without a massive, massive, in, in, you know, upfront in terms of capital. Um, but if you're able to consistently create decent quality content and then blend that in with curated content, um, I think it becomes, you know, imminently more sustainable. And so I thought there was a, a, a place for that, um, as well as layering in different content categories, such that one place where you have traditional content, you have, you know, video content, you have podcast content, you even have meme content, yeah. um, almost, you know, you say, okay, we, we can get a small group of guys and they can spend eight hours a day on Reddit so that, you know, everybody else doesn't, doesn't have to, or they can spend, you know, eight hours a day curating memes from Instagram so that, you know, everyone else doesn't have to. And I think there's value and appreciation for that, that curation. And I don't think a lot of people are doing that good of a job in, in terms of uh, a destination that brings all that together and isn't, singularly focused on say finance or politics or right. current events or, or sports. It just curates like a blend of across, across a, a, a blend of, of across that. So we, we started a website, which is still in beta test right now called the whim.com, mm -hmm. um, which we're pretty excited about. It's sort of like a, I, this isn't a great description of it, but I would say it's almost like business insider meets drudge report um, okay. with a cleaner, more updated aesthetic. And so, I think that's going to be a, a, an increasing focus of mine moving forward. And then we're going to layer in with that kind of a, a, a podcast. And so we were looking at starting the podcast, which is something I've, I've thought about for a while. Okay. We have all these followers. Um, you know, I can, I know a lot of people that are influencers or, or well-known figures in the business world or the media world or the political sphere um, who follow GS elevator on, on, on Twitter. Um, I can reach out to them and get them on my podcast. Um, you know, the, the investment firm that we work with has a, an extensive Rolodex here in, in Houston as it relates to professional athletes and business leaders and people like that. We can get them on the podcast. Um, I know this from when I wrote the book. My publicist and my publisher made me go on every single podcast they were asked for me to do, regardless of how big or small. I mean, right. exaggerating there, but generally speaking, I had to do a lot of podcasts that, that I didn't want to do when I was throwing a book. And so another strategy of ours is to reach out to publishers and publicists and say, hey, you know this book is coming out next month or next week. Um, here we have now, uh, when I add the, the whim to uh, GS Elevator, you know, combined, you know, a million and a half followers across, you know, a very diverse group of social channels in a way that not a lot of people do in terms of having, you know, 100,000 people on Instagram, 400,000 people on, on Facebook and, you know, yeah. 900,000 people on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's a, it's a pretty compelling case. And I think we're going to be, it's going to be easy for us to kind of bring in some exciting guests and, and really get the, the podcast rolling. But, um, it's something that we're really just, it's kind of at its infancy right now. It's called the, awesome. the grays. The grays. Um, cool. Okay. Um, it's kind of part of the, under the, the whim umbrella. 
Um, and we're just going to com combine that with all of the, the legacy uh, GS Elevator stuff, both the, the kind of evergreen content as well as the, the social media footprint. So, you know, that, that, that's kind of what my focus has shifted to now. So, you know, uh, fashion, the, the, the healthcare startup, and now this, this media initiative, which sounds like you're busy. A lot of sounds fun. like you're super busy. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, that's good fun awesome. to have. I mean, obviously it's, you know, I spent, I spent two or three years just, you know, playing golf, drinking and hanging out, changing diapers. So um, it's kind of <laughs> I'm, nice. I'm to, in that stage. I'm in that stage right now. I've still, I'm still changing a lot of diapers. So um, <laughs> it's nice yeah. to be out of it, I guess. Tell it me it's very nice. better. <laughs> um, but anyways, Anything before we call it, anything you want to share with the listeners kind of, or, or advice you'd give to your younger self, kind of not knowing what you didn't know, not knowing that your, your path would be so winding. Anything you'd tell yourself? Yeah, sure. I guess, uh, I, I guess I'm not trying to do a, a shameless plug here, but um, you know, I did write uh, you know, 10 reasons why Wall Street is still a great place to start your career. And again, this is kind of a cynical, cynical approach, you know, how to, how to get a job on, on Wall Street and, um, how to kind of excel as uh, a new hire or even in your summer internship. And I shifted all that content. It's, it's been amazing to me because, you know, taking a step back, this, this content, the GS Elevator content is so evergreen that, you know, the, the legacy stuff still gets a couple hundred thousand views every month and I wasn't really doing anything with it. And so that's another component of this media initiative is to keep that evergreen content living and breathing and updating it and tweaking it and making sure that it, it stays relevant. So sure. all that old content, which I think can be valuable, especially to some of your, your younger listeners, you know, 15 books to read if you want to work on wall street, you know, how to, how to dress on wall street, the, the hierarchy of watches on wall street. I mean, just uh, all that stuff is, is readily available on, on the whim.com. And, and we're going to be increasingly more aggressive in terms of generating new relevant content. And then, kind of layering that in with our, our more recent uh, Instagram initiative. I mean, we just started on Instagram uh, less than six months ago and we have, you know, 80,000 followers. And so, and it's been fun. I didn't think I would, I would like it, but that, that, that's been fun. In terms of um, advice I would give my younger self, um, I mean, I guess it, it kind of aligns with what, a little bit what we talked about earlier, you know, just network like like crazy figure out what your your passion is and then find the people that you look up to in that space and emulate what they have done to uh achieve that success and then of course the minute you're not happy just go do something else you know life is life is too short um but uh i guess that that kind of covers it that's great. Well, John, thanks so much for taking your precious time, your, your busy time to, to come on the pod. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.